This is a podcast by Householders Options to Protect the Environment, Hope Australia. We are a community environmental education and capacity building organisation based in Toowoomba, South East Queensland, Australia. This is a podcast in the series Eco Social Work in Australia. It was produced for Hope Australia in Toowoomba, Queensland, on and adjacent to the traditional lands of the Jarawa, Guyabal, Yugara and Waka Waka peoples. Hope pays respect to the past, present and emerging leaders of all First Nations people in this country and acknowledges the unique contribution that their cultures make to contemporary Australia. Hello, my name is Andrew Nicholson and I'm the researcher and producer of the Eco-Social Work in Australia podcast series on behalf of the Hope Australia organisation. Within Australia over the last few years, the momentum to develop eco-social work theory and on-the-ground practice has begun to emerge prominently within the pre-qualification training of social work students, both within the academic institutions and on placement. Eco-social work ideas have also begun to gain ground in some social work settings within the healthcare sector. There is a growing realisation of the risk of future serious public health impacts of uncontrolled climate change on patients and hospital social work clients and an increasing interest in how hospital-based social work practice could respond to that threat. My guest on this episode of the Eco-Social Work series, Dr Roz Darricott, has extensive professional experience across social work training provision and social work intervention within the healthcare sector. She talks to me about how her growing interest in eco-social work ideas and practice have influenced her work and thinking in both of these sectors. So, um, welcome, Roz. Great to have you on the podcast. Thanks, Andy. It's a bit exciting and to be here, really. Thank you so much. Well, look, I, I want to start the conversation by asking you to introduce yourself, give us a bit of an overview of your professional background, and also some insight into how you first became aware of this idea of green or eco-social work, a still emerging body of ideas and practice within the social work profession? Uh, so I'm kind of at that point where I've been a social worker longer than I haven't, which is a bit scary. Um, my background is primarily in rural and remote practice, so 20 odd years in a small community and sort of covering large regions and working with yeah, very small communities. And then in the last 10 years, more of a regional focus. Uh, the, um, and it's been, a, you know, a, because it's been rural and remote, it's been quite generalist in the sort of work that I've done. So lots of individual family, couple kind of counselling work along with community development, um, you know, non-acute mental health, child protection related stuff. So a, a really, um, a, one of the benefits, I think, of rural and remote practice is that um, you get to do that generic generalist work, which I always found really rewarding. The, um, and I think it really was the rural and remote work that provided a foundation for an interest in eco-social work. I was kind of involved in eco-social work without even knowing what it was. And it wasn't until I... Um, started my PhD actually and picked up Kim Zapp's book around social work in the environment that I thought oh someone's writing about this that's a bit exciting and, and then I came across McKinnon's early work there in, in 2008 and 
uh, Lena Dominelli's uh, Green Social Work, of course. So it was uh, lovely to, to start to find some theory that I could hang some of the, the observations in my work on. Yeah, thanks for that, Ros. And, and just to point out that um, some of these references, you know, to sort of foundational texts and resources, you know, we'll definitely put them into the episode notes, link them, um, you know, to where they're available on the internet, um, or at least certainly the references so that, you know, the listeners can follow this up. Uh, look, thanks for that. And staying with this sort of personal story element, uh, Ros, of your own development of eco-social work, thought and practice, can you tell us a bit about your own interpretations of what green or eco-social work is all about in 2021? Perhaps, you know, drawing on your social work educator role, because I know you've been in that sort of role before, and from your research interests. And also, I know this is, you know, multiple questions in one section. I hope you've got a good memory, Ros. Uh, could you also perhaps give us some direct examples of eco-social work practice drawn from that professional experience? So look, I think that's a great question in terms of trying to sum up what something like eco-social work is because it is such a broad idea. And so for me, I think it is social work practice that both recognises and promotes the interconnections between people and the environment. Um, I So Kim Zapp's work for me was um, kind of fundamental in terms of shaping my thinking around this and his idea of people as place really resonated uh, with me as a practitioner. Uh, so that, that interconnectedness and it's the, when we think about it in that broad way, it enables us to think about how it is that we can take the principles of eco-social work or green social work and apply them in all practice fields, um, in all methodologies of practice. And it, rather than it being something that belongs, you know, simply in activism or in social policy work or in community development work, uh, but really thinking about how it can apply in, yeah, all of the micro, meso and macro practice that we might be engaged in. Uh, yeah, so I really like Zapp's idea of, of people as places, this kind of fundamental organising principle uh, to practice. And so when I first, before before I kind of came across this literature, I suppose I started to, to realise that, you know, a lot of the work that I was doing um, involved in, in the counselling space involved exploring people's connection to place and the meaning that place had for them as it was relevant to whatever was presenting. Uh, and so I had been doing that for a while. And then as a manager in rural and remote areas, I became aware of how it was that practitioners' connection to place influenced the way that they then engaged with place and the people of that place. And I, that, was a, that was really interesting to me. So I observed that I could have practitioners come to this quite arid environment that we were working in and they could connect potentially quite strongly with the community itself but if they didn't have a connection with the environment where it didn't rain very much and there wasn't any green uh, and you really did need to like red dirt uh, it actually became something that that impacted on people's willingness to stay working in the area so they might be enjoying the work they might be enjoying the community, 
but it was the environment themselves itself that they struggled to connect with, um, whereas other practitioners would come and the red dirt would sing to them. Um, so that it was that observation, I think, in terms of, you know, it's not just about connection to place with client work, but it was also around meaning of place and connection to place for practitioners and how that then influenced the way that they engaged. And in particular, it was interesting in terms of what it meant for longevity in the role as well. Um, you know, they had staff talk about, you know, that their, their soul belonged to the ocean. You know, and when the ocean's 800 kilometres away, that's, you know, that's a little tricky. Um, so certainly in the early days, I was um, really interested in that and that was very much incorporated both into management work as well as individual and family work. And then when I did my PhD, one of the, I, I looked at the influences on practice in social care and one of the things that I explored was the role of relationship to place in practice as an influence. So I got to play with those ideas a bit more. And that's where I really did come across this more of a, a theoretical grounding around those ideas. And, um, and so it's since then, I suppose, that I've thought more broadly around eco-social work practice and connecting that more with environmental concerns. So, um, so probably it's only been in the last 10 years that I've really kind of made stronger connections in terms of environmental activism and uh, eco-social work. Um, although saying that, you know, the um, what I had, I'd been in that space without making that connection to social work, <laughs> yeah. uh, which was interesting. Yeah. <clears throat> um, yeah, so I suppose over time it's evolved now to be really thinking about how it is that the principles of the interconnectedness between people and the environment and how it is that we can both address that and promote it in all fields of practice. So really, really having a look at how it is that that, that, that awareness can shape our work beyond just meaning of place. But, uh, you know, so... Most recently, now that I'm back working in a health context, really thinking about how it is that as a hospital social worker, how do I incorporate these principles? What's, you know, what is it in my day-to-day -day work from these principles that I can bring into practice? And particularly given climate disruption, what, what does that mean in terms of additional vulnerabilities for the people that I work with? And what do I need to be doing differently in my practice around that? And how do I promote... Uh, that in the practice of my colleagues. Um, Does that answer all parts of your question? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I suppose just to drill down a bit more, I'm, I'm thinking of my own time. It's a while, a while ago now, but in the counselling role, you know, working with rural clients, um, I, I would remember that often, you know, saying couple relationship work often, not always, but there would be some aspect of, um, you know, a couple living on a property, for instance, and the attachment to that place, you know, the very uh, central importance of the property, but not just from an economic point of view, but from the psychological point of view, you know, with different yes. views about, you know, transitioning out of that as in, at retirement or succession planning or something like that to passing the, pro you know, a lot of psycho mm -hmm. psychological energy tied up with place, and Absolutely. Um, yeah, so I, I you know, I, I can fully understand what you, where you're coming from on that. Uh, and there's certainly in that rural and remote context, Andy, we expect people 
to pick up and shift. Um, you know, so, you know, displacement has been the experience of Indigenous communities, you know, for the last 200 years. Uh, and we continue that, you know, that theme um, for rural communities across the board in terms of, you know, if, um, if you need additional health support, for example, the expectation is that you move. Um, you move to get it because it isn't feasible to, to access that, you know, higher levels of health support in places where you may have strong connection to country or to, to community, to place. So uh, I think there's much to be learnt in terms of this interconnectedness from Indigenous knowledge and Indigenous social work. So Kim Zapf, in his literature review that looked at the way that social work had written the physical environment out of the, um, the social work um, person environment perspective, you know, talks about the exceptions being Indigenous social work literature um, and also the rural and remote social work literature, that it's kind of that connection to place is really only been acknowledged um, in those spaces previous to the last, you know, 10 to 15 years. I think it's interesting that, you know, in allied fields that are pretty close to, to a, a social work field, well, some people might consider it, but, you know, for instance, in the field of psychology, Perhaps psychology has got to that point around the the sort of importance of place a bit earlier because there's a <clears throat> quite a, a literature on so-called psychotoratic illness. You know, when places are damaged or places are altered by, for instance, the effects of climate change, the negative psychological effects that can come out of that. But then equally on the positive side, you know, the growing understanding and promotion as a health benefit of uh, being in green places. So, um, yeah, I, I think there's a lot of there's a very ex expanding interest uh, going on around place in, in, in a different number of sectors. But it's very interesting to hear you, you know, point to that specifically within the social work sector. And um, yeah, yeah, go on, go on. Yeah, it's really interesting. So, you know, there's a quite a developed body of literature in terms of the environmental psychology, but human geography as well. Um, there's some really interesting work that's been done in that space. Roz, we've been talking a fair amount about the influence of place on social work clients, whether that be geographical, climatic, psychological, or a combination of all of those. So this might be a good time to come back to your particular interest in the work of Kim Zapf, Canadian Professor Emeritus of Social Work. Some of his past research and publications, along with the likes of John Copes, Fred Besthorn, Lena Dominelli, and Mel Gray in Australia, can be considered as foundational texts in the evolving theory of social work practice. As with other researchers, Zapp's recent work has focused on the capacity of mainstream social work to recognize, understand, and factor in the importance of human relationships to the physical environment and natural world. One of his particular insights is that social work needs a new key practice metaphor to replace the outmoded person in social environment framework. This has led to his suggestion to replace person in environment framings with person as place. So given its importance in your recent work, can you un unpack, as they say, the people as place concept a little more from a theoretical viewpoint and perhaps give us a further example of how it has influenced your thinking about eco-social work in relation to the Australian health sector? Kim Zatz did a whole, um, a whole lot of work examining the history of social work and the way it has framed um, the environment. So when we talk about the person environment perspective, um, what Kim Zapp identified was this historical pattern 
of social work writing out the physical environment um, from that. And at best, when it was there, it was presented as a backdrop to human activity, as opposed to um, recognising the interconnected relationship between people and place. Uh, so what, um, what Zapf proposes is that the, the language of person environment or person in environment, uh, you know, which has become, he argues that over time it's become our foundational metaphor, he, he argues it needs to be retired because the language as a metaphor limits our understanding of people's relationship with the environment that by a focus on person, it's very individualised. So using the language of person automatically implies an individual perspective. Uh, and by using either the semicolon or the um, colon and uh, the, or the in, um, it, there, there is automatically a suggestion of disconnection and then the word environment, well, it by itself isn't such a problem, but, the, we've, but we've gotten into such a habit within social work that when we read environment, we read social environment and we don't think in terms of uh, the physical environment, natural, built, whatever. Like it's, um, we, we have really become quite skewed in our perception of that meaning. So what Zapf is arguing, as I interpret it, is that, you know, language is both shaped by but shapes our perspective. And so, therefore, we need a new metaphor that really um, represents the communal responsibility and connection to the environment. So what um, Zapf suggests is using the term people instead of person. Uh, because that implies a communal kind of focus as opposed to an individual focus, proposes the use of the word place instead of environment, and that's in recognition of the work in other disciplines that have really kind of uh, evolved these ideas of sense of place, meaning of place, place attachment, um, place-based practice, and so that, you know, the terminology of place really does capture uh, the physical, natural environment. And then the as place, as opposed to and or in, promotes the interconnected nature. So if we, you know, if you, if you had people and place, then it still keeps these as separate uh, concepts. So that's that's the kind of my understanding of what he's proposing and why he's proposing it. it it's a way of uh, shifting our focus, and um, and he doesn't believe that's possible with if we maintain that foundation metaphor as it stands because of the assumptions that it conveys. The um, so Zapf has got as far as saying, all right, well, if that's the foundational metaphor, that the next part um, of a, you know, of a model is then the, um, the the purpose. And so, you know, the person and environment kind of purpose for social work, which has been heavily critiqued, kind of is that goodness of fit idea. And, and it does run the risk of getting people to fit with their environment, where even if their environment is actually the problem, um, their social environment is the problem. So it's been heavily critiqued from other angles anyway. 
so what he's proposing instead is that, you know, a foundational metaphor of, as, of people as place actually, you know, promotes a social purpose of something like living well in place, which, you know, is a, um, allows a much more ecological understanding of people's relationship, um, relationships all round. What's kind of unfinished, and, and Zap is clear about that, is, you know, the next steps are then, you know, developing the conceptual frameworks for practice and the actual practice methods. And, um, and I think my perception is that's probably where we're at at present. You know, there's um, this whole idea of eco-social work. We're still grappling with what that means in terms of conceptual frameworks and um, uh, the practice methods, how it is that we actually enact this on the ground. But what really appeals to me about that stuff is that idea of a, a completely new foundational metaphor that captures that connection. Um, and, I, and I think for me, when we talk about the influence on pl of place on practice, it's not just about the, the person's connection to place, that the person that we're working with or the, the family or the community that we're working with, it's actually the practitioner's relationship to that place as well and how it is that we connect and does that influence the way that we engage with people in that place um, and the assumptions that we make about those relationships. So as a foundational metaphor, I think it, it's potentially very useful for us in our own critical reflection about what influences our own practice. So in terms of how this is influencing like my, my work in health practice, I don't, I think I'm still experimenting and this is, you know, the, um, we're using student placements as a way to be exploring uh, the way that we can be, you know, adapting practice methods and um, to be more aware of um, environmental issues and in particular climate awareness. Uh, I, you know, climate awareness is so relevant in health that it is a nice practical application, I think, of a people as place um, lens because the connections are so clear. Um, so I, I don't have a clear answer for how it's for how it's impacting in, in our health practice, except to say I think that's where we're at, is actually really trying to experiment with what does this look like? What are we doing different? If, we, if we're going to use this lens, what would we then be doing differently? How would that inform our work differently? What are the concepts that we have to make room for in our practice? What are the concepts that we need to get, we need to let go? Um, and how do we need to shift our, our practice methods to be able to, um, to, to be congruent with a people as place metaphor? That's a good uh, exploration there, you know, some starting questions there to help shape uh, that future exploration that obviously needs to be going on. Thanks, Ros. You know, let's st just let's stay with the health sector for a while because, you know, it does employ a lot of social workers in Australia. Um, and it is one area where, you know, eco-social work ideas are ta taking hold, as you imply before. Um, but can you, you know, just stay with that and, and perhaps unpack that a bit more, um, give us a bit of an overview 
uh, or where you think the, the eco-social work field is up to in Australia, specifically in the health sector context. And, you know, perhaps, and you've, you've, you've alluded to this already to some extent, but perhaps against the background of the growing theory base of eco-social work as it may relate to traditional social work roles in the public health and hospital sector. I know that there have been, you know, some some tentative views about, for instance, risk assessment, um, health risk assessments being made in the hospital context uh, in with climate change in mind. Do you want to say something about about that sort of area? Yeah, sure. So the um, certainly from uh, there's a really strong body of literature connecting the health impacts with climate disruption. So that's a, you know, a really robust body of literature. However, when you go looking at the literature in terms of the intersection between social work and health um, and climate change, there is pretty well nothing. Um, there's an absolute dearth of literature in, that actually looks at that intersection. So lots around social work and health, lots around health and climate disruption, nothing about all three. <laughs> um, and so I think the beginning of, you know, that that's something that an area that we have a lot of work to do in because what we do know from the health and climate change research is that it's the most vulnerable people in the community that are going to be the most impacted by climate change. And that's the people in the public health system that we most frequently work with. So, you know, hospital social workers, I think, are really potentially at the front line here in terms of helping people um, respond and, um, you know, reduce risk in terms of climate change vulnerability. However, you know, certainly at this point, um, there isn't, you know, there doesn't appear to have been any research or literature. So what we've started to do... Um, in my workplace is we've had a series of student placements begin to explore that idea. So we had a, uh, a student who did a big, the focus of her placement was to look at the literature and uh, she did a fantastic job. And what she did was, you know, firstly identified, no, we, you know, we weren't dreaming. Uh, we hadn't missed anything that, that you know, she couldn't find anything that kind of made those direct connections. However, there's lots that um, can build a really strong argument as to the importance of us being on the front foot in terms of social work practice in a hospital environment and a broader health context and climate change. And so from that, we then had um, a series... A number of other students do some work looking at, well, what might need to be different in terms of the work that we do. So, you know, and so it's very much been a, about trying to explore how our practice needs to evolve to be incorporating eco-social work ideas specifically around uh, climate change threat. So, uh, you know, we've looked at, you know, how it is that our psychosocial assessments and particularly risk assessments uh, and discharge planning processes need to be adjusted to take into account um, climate change risk and vulnerability. 
Thanks for that. You know, just staying with that, one of the ideas there, you allude, you know, to, and you have it at several points to the somewhat, you know, dearth of research and literature on eco-social work practice on the ground, you know, what it means in practical terms to be doing this type of social work. This podcast series itself is one attempt to bring, you know, greater awareness of what the form, this form of practice involves. So although this, this podcast series also dwells mainly on the progressive and positive aspects of the diffusion of eco-social work ideas and interventions in Australia, I'm also asking each of my guests what, you know, uh, on a bit of a SWOT uh, framework basis, what they think about possible challenges or restraining influences that may be slowing down the adoption of eco-social work into the social work mainstream here. Do you have anything to say on that aspect? Look, I think from a direct practice perspective, my observation would be that people who are engaged in micro-direct practice uh, tend to see eco-social work or green social work as something that you do if you do community development or political activism, and they don't see the relevance in their day-to-day -day, um, direct practice with clients or patients, you know, depending on the context. Um, and so I think that's a significant barrier. And that's why I'm really keen for us to be thinking about the variety of ways that eco-social work could be informing the way that we engage in our work. Because we need to, it needs to be relevant. And it is relevant. I, I, I strongly believe that those principles are relevant no matter what practice field we're in. Um, and no matter what practice methodology we're using, but we actually need to do the thinking through about what that looks like. And, um, and that takes headspace. And if we continue to think about eco-social work as something that's relevant out there and perhaps something that we engage in after hours <laughs> or um, as um, when we're doing a project, then we're not going to develop those ideas about how to integrate it more broadly into all spheres of the profession. You know, staying with that theme in a sense of reflection, you know, reflection on practice, um, you know, praxis, you know, an attempt to, you know, sharpen up our focus and get new modes of work in place. Uh, again, part of each of these uh, podcast episodes, I ask my guests to dream a little, I suppose, um, to provide a mini vision of where eco-social work practice could be headed or where it needs to go to achieve its full potential as a significant practice turn or even new operational framework within main so mainstream social work. Now, I know perhaps utopian thinking is, is out, a bit out of fashion, but, you know, that whole history of utopianist thinking or progressive thinking, um, you know, thinking outside of the square is, is how social progress has taken place and within the professional um, structures that we deal with perhaps as you perhaps imply we, we need to be thinking more about alternatives to doing the work that we do and, and eco-social work is is in there in the mix I would have thought so have you anything to say about that you know a bit of a vision as to where practice could go I mean it's it, it's an early stage my sense talking to colleagues and uh you know, workers around the traps, it, it, it's coming, it's, it's been coming for some time, but it's, it's still a slow diffusion process into the mainstream. Where might it go in the future? Where should it go? Where could it go? Yeah. Uh, sky's the limit, I, really, I think, really. <laughs> um, there's some lovely work that's being done looking at 
decentering white Western knowledges from curriculum so that Indigenous knowledges can become more centred in social work learning. And, you know, I think that's a fantastic starting point. Uh, you know, it's those white Western knowledges that separate people from their physical environment, you know, those constructions of, um, of human beings as separate. Um, so I, I think if we're looking at embracing um, eco-social work, we need to at the same time the, the, be embracing Indigenous knowledges and learning from those. Um, and we can't do that while we continue to hold as absolutely central um, white Western ways of knowing. Um, so I think, you know, as a profession, that's a significant fundamental shift. And I do know that, you know, the university sector, um, there, there's quite a bit of movement there and there's been some great work in terms of trying to get that um, on the agenda in, in curriculum. So that's a good starting point. I think the difficulty is that while we can have a movement in terms of creating change through new graduates entering, we also need to be creating change in the workplace. Otherwise, we do we undo all of that good work. So that, you know, the new graduates come out and then they, you know, with some perhaps some really solid understanding around eco-social work principles and Indigenous contributions to understanding relationships and relationships with the environment, and then that can be completely undone uh, by workplaces that uh, that write that stuff back out of practice and that centre, you know, those very traditional uh, ways of social work practice. So we've got to get both happening at the same time. I don't think that we can just create change through uh, a new generation of practitioners. It is about influencing people's existing practice to be um, embracing these ideas uh, so that we're socialising, we're continuing to socialise the, the new graduates into, into these ways. And, you know, the, um, it's that whole idea of decolonising social work practice, I suppose, and how do we do that when we work within such colonising organisations? So uh, it's, it's a tricky piece of work, but I think we've, we can't, we've actually got to tackle every, we, those things that are bound together and we need to really um, recognise how bound up that is. Uh, given that framing, you know, uh, I mean, the flip side, I suppose, of looking for the challenges and the problems is to look at the benefits. And I, I, I know I'm putting you on the spot here and perhaps labouring the point, but just to spell this out, what do you think? Again, again, this is a speculative thing in your personal view, but I'll ask each guest this. Um, what do you think might be some of the longer term benefits of adopting eco-social work practice more widely than currently exists in the Australian mainstream profession? Put another way in attempting to answer that, you know, sort of classic question of so what? Um, why should podcast listeners new to these ideas at, at whatever level or role they fulfill within the social work hierarchy consider getting on board with the ideas and practice methods of eco-social work? Fundamentally, because if we keep writing the natural environment out of um, 
the social environment, the, the social work person environment um, perspective, then we're going to continue to damage both the environment and the people that we work with. You know, that um, social work has, you know, potentially inadvertently bought into the commodification of the environment by divorcing people from the natural environment. And that's damaging. It's damaging to the people we work with, the communities that we work with and the environment. Uh, so the, the imperative thing here is if we're actually going to uh, stop perpetuating that, <laughs> then we, we need to change what we're doing. Nice, succinct answer. And, um, you know, in a sense, leading on from that, uh, a, a, pen, a penultimate question, to use a fancy term. Um, I also am asking each podcast guest to speculate. And you, you've, you've implied this already, but just again, to spell this out, if, if you, you know, if you have these one or two possible short term one, you know, one, but one or two short term intermediate steps, which could be taken in your areas of interest um, to help achieve that vision, to help achieve that, you know, positive contribution that eco-social work can make uh, to the profession in this country. Do you have any suggestions around some practical steps, you know, in the short term future, perhaps say the next couple of years, a couple of things or one thing? I think it's about experimentation. So experimenting with those ideas about how it is that the principles of eco-social work could be uh, adopted in day-to-day -day practice, whatever day-to-day -day practice might look like in your particular field. Thinking that through, experimenting with it, um, and preferably finding the opportunity to promote what you're doing and share those ideas so that we can grow a community of practice around this. Finally, Ros, do you have a short take-home message or one key idea from our conversation today that is a representative of your comments and which the audience can reflect on after, after listening to this? I think it is about people, or social work, shifting its view to recognise that eco-social work can be a core theoretical approach within our practice framework. It's not an add-on. It's not something that we only do sometimes, but it has the potential to actually be a fundamental element of a social work practice frame. I like that very much, you know, because it, it goes to the heart of, you know, is this just a, a, a sort of an ephemeral uh, set of ideas that come and go, or is this, you know, a solid transformative turn within the profession? You clearly are indicating it's the latter. And I sincerely, mm, I think, sincerely hope that's the case. I think it should be. Mm. Well, listen, just to, to round this off now, Ros, look, on behalf of the HOPE organisation and, you know, and, and in the production of this series on eco-social work, thank you so much for your time today and for the interesting and stimulating ideas you provided. Thank you. Thanks, Andy. You've been listening to a podcast episode in the series Eco-Social Work in Australia produced for Householders' Options to Protect the Environment. Please consult the episode text notes for possible references to topics discussed and relevant contact details should you wish to respond to anything you've heard. My name is Andrew Nicholson, producer of the series, and thank you for listening.